we met the cast again and everything. And I remember I had not met Dylan yet. And I met him and I got to hang out with him for a little bit because we were all doing a table read and everything. And I leaned over to Russell and I said, I think that guy's going to be a big star. Not National Treasure, Danny Mahilani. <laughs> <laughs> Give me the cook of beer. This is just what I know. It's like a urban legend. In the, in the werewolf community. And you're like, oh, 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 no, 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 no. This is worse. Cut me in half instead. <laughs> just being able to find so much joy in Teen Wolf. Welcome to Return to Beacon Hills, a Teen Wolf Rewatch podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Closa Mollis, and I'm joined by Kate Colvin and Will Wallace. Every week, we'll be watching and talking about the hit MTV series one episode at a time. And this week, and this week, we're talking about season one, episode eight, Lunatic. If you're watching Teen Wolf for the first time and you're worried about spoilers, have no fear. This podcast is broken up into two sections. Alpha and Beta. The Beta section is for first-timers who are just now finding this awesome series and don't want to be spoiled about what's to come. The second section, Alpha, is where we go full spoilers and talk about not just the current episode, but the entire Teen Wolf series as well as its place in the fandom. In the show notes of your podcast app of choice, you'll find time codes for the Alpha and Beta sections. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at RTBH Podcast, as well as on Tumblr and TikTok at Return to Beacon Hills. If you'd like to ask us questions or offer suggestions for future topics to discuss, you can email us at returntobeaconhills at gmail.com. If you'd like to support the show, you can find us on Patreon at RTBH Podcast. There, our Wolfie patrons will gain access to awesome exclusives like early access to episodes, full moon AMAs, the Beacon Hills Movie Club, where we watch and provide commentary for movies starring the amazing cast of Teen Wolf and featuring the work of our talented crew, as well as guest video interviews and monthly watch parties. So head on over to patreon.com slash RTBH podcast and join the pack. This week's alpha patron howlouts go to Mona Lisa Carter and Ashby Brame. Thank you for supporting the show. This week's episode is called Lunatic. It was written by Monica Maester and directed by Tim Andrew. On the day preceding the full moon, Scott goes moon crazy, alienating everyone from his mom to his best friend and fears that he could lose control and kill someone. Kate teaches Allison how to protect herself, but also grills her for information. The rift between Lydia and Jackson widens. While the manhunt for Derek intensifies, Jackson and Allison share their doubts about Scott's claim that Derek is the killer. That night, Scott gives in to lunacy. The Argents go out for a night of hunting, and multiple parties start to close in on the identity of the second Beta. This week's favorite quote comes from Victoria Argent in a scene where she, Chris, and Kate, and a couple other henchmen are discussing whether or not Derek Hale will be out on the night of the full moon. One of the henchmen asks what if Derek Hale does go out on the night of the full moon, and Victoria says, you find him, you kill him, you cut him in half. Anybody want a cookie? And it's just a great quote, because Edie Mays is awesome and amazing and terrifying. So horrifying. Very scary. I would be very suspect of any food. She was like, would you like, (laughs) would you like this juicy apple? You know, it's like, oh, I mean. There might have been ground up glass. I was just going (laughs) to (laughs) be. Follow up question. Are there any thumbtacks in your cooking? I'm asking for a friend. I completely trust you. My friend is my stomach. (laughs) Uh, 
You know what really surprises me though is I feel like Victoria is the type when there's any guest in the house that she doesn't know for sure, she would feed them something laced with wolfsbane. Oh yeah. No, oh. absolutely. I mean, she, clearly I, she doesn't because it doesn't happen with Scott, but I feel like that's what would make sense. That would make do. total sense. Where it's like she's got this like this tray of like hors d'oeuvres or something. She's like, oh yes, but she like kind of shifts it so it's like a certain one goes to a certain person just in case, just trying. Because I mean, it seems like that would make complete sense is that hunters would need to be on their toes because you, you got shapeshifters. Like, yeah, how do you know, do they do tests, I wonder, for like new hunters to prove they're not, there's oh, not like probably. an undercover werewolf? Oh, I'm sure yeah, they're like, sure. eat this flower. <laughs> or maybe maybe they would take a photo of them looking directly at the camera and see if Which it may or may not out. work. Oh, <laughs> which, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and Victoria Argent's definitely the type of person that has, like, two cookie jars. One of them has, like, a little <laughs> flower painted on it, you know? Right. And it's With, just like, they all have purple icing or something? Ex- yes, exactly. They're all, they all have that little purple icing, and it's just like, oh, you're a new cookie? We have a couple of runner-up favorite quotes this week. The first one coming from Styles in a scene where he finally makes first line on the team, and Coach thinks his name is Biles Belinsky. So Styles tells Scott, <laughs> call me Biles, or I swear to God, I'll kill you. Very, very funny. Dylan O'Brien proving yet again, or once again, that uh, he is a master of comedy. Our second honorable mention quote also comes from Styles, and it's right after the Biles Belinsky scene. And Scott is telling Styles that he can actually smell people's emotions in the locker room. He could smell Jackson's jealousy when coach told everyone that both Jackson and Scott would be co-captains of the team. And Styles becomes very interested in this, you know, and he's like, what else can you smell? Can you smell sexual desire, lust, passion, arousal? Arousal. <laughs> I can't do arousal. the, I can't, I can't do can't the, roll the tongue roll tongue very well. Arousal. Yeah, no one can do it like Dylan O'Brien though. No, it's, but it's great. It's a great scene. And then he's like, when Styles does it, it's like a cat purr. Well, That's what it sounds like. Try to that. Me. <laughs> <laughs> is that what a cat purr sounds like? I, no, I can't, I can't make. I don't, I don't know how someone couldn't be attracted to him after hearing him just say arousal. <laughs> Our final honorable mention quote comes from Coach Fenstock, and it comes from the scene where he is telling everyone that. Both Jackson and Scott will be co-captains of the team. And Jackson is, I guess, understandably, not very happy about this. So coach says, Jackson, this takes nothing away from you. This is about combining separate strengths into one unit. This is about taking your unit, McCall's unit. We're making one big unit. McCall, it's you and Jackson now. Everyone else, asses on the field, asses on the field. (laughs) It's very funny. It's very funny. Yes, and Orny Adams has such... He is able to say the craziest lines with with so much conviction, you know, that I you believe coach believes all these words. And he says crazy stuff, just crazy <laughs> things. But in his mind, he's like, this is the most inspirational thing since the I have a dream speech. With Scott's relationship with Allison on the rocks, Styles performs what he perceives to be his best friend duty and takes Scott out into the preserve to partake in some Tennessee whiskey not on the rocks. Though Styles gets properly wasted waxing poetic about Lydia Martin, Scott doesn't feel anything, leading Styles to consider the possibility that Scott can't get drunk anymore. I adore drunk Styles. I wish we had more of that. Dylan O'Brien just gives the best smile in the scene. He's just a really happy. adorable drunk. <laughs> yes. He is. He's really adorable. And I really like this scene. I feel like Styles is really looking after Scott. And I really like this. And had it been a little bit reversed, like maybe had 
you know, because Scott maybe can't get drunk anymore because of the constant healing going on in his body. But had it been the other way where he did get drunk, I totally feel like, you know, Styles would have been talking through it as Scott was getting more and more drunk and they would have had a nice proper cry about it or something. And Styles is just there to look out for his best friend. I also really like the revelation that Scott can't get drunk anymore because I feel like one of the things that the show is doing with the werewolf mythology is reminding you that everything that's great has a downside. Nothing is perfect. You know, there's a price to pay. And Scott's already seen a lot of these consequences, like not being able to be with his girlfriend and having arrows shot into his arm. And I'm confident that he would put the importance in that order and not swap them. (laughs) (laughs) And now he's discovered another one, which is that he can't get drunk anymore. And it made me think of the scene in Captain America where after Bucky dies and he goes to a bar, he tries to drink his sorrows away and finds out that he can't do it after trying very hard. And it's a great scene there. And it's a great scene here, kind of for similar reasons, which is that nothing comes for free, mm-hmm. not super serum and not the bite. You know, there there's a downside to everything. Yeah. Yeah. I think it really reinforces that he's no longer just a normal teenager and he can't have normal teenage experiences. He's been pushing hard since he first got bitten to just continue his life as a normal 16 year old. But he just has to accept that's not who he is anymore. I really like kind of like just the logical extension of this where it's like, if you get hurt, your body heals, you know? And so you don't really think about like alcohol being like a a form of not pain, but like um, damage, damage, you're damaging your body when you drink. And so it's like, well, your body's constantly healing. So you can't now do this thing. You know, I like just the logical extension. It's like, Hey, if you have this healing ability, what else does that mean? You know, instead of just being like, Oh, he he can't get hurt, but he can still get drunk or still do this or still that. It's like, Nope, this is, I like what you said is just, there's a price, you know, that it's like, you get this amazing thing, but you're going to lose something too. So, and you wonder, I mean, if a werewolf gets hurt to the point where their body can't just heal right away. So for instance, if they needed to go to a werewolf doctor, (laughs) like, you know, if they needed to get surgery or something would they be able to knock them out or would they just have to like bang their head against something hard and and hope that that knocks them out oh, I think man. that one <laughs> that, I don't know. because it would be Derek's approach to doing it it would yeah. definitely be Derek's approach Derek and the Acme Corporation <laughs> <laughs> so Styles tries to comfort Scott by saying that always being alone is worse than being dumped but he's interrupted by a couple of intimidating guys who try to take the whiskey that they were drinking Scott snaps and starts to shift, throwing the bottle against the tree before Styles manages to drag him away. This is a, a fun bit of this scene where you go from very lighthearted, very high school, and it kind of turns on a dime to something kind of menacing and scary. Yes, and Teen Wolf does that a lot and does it very well. Yes. That yes, like sort of breakneck speed turning from one tone to another. Yes. Absolutely. And I, I remember when we were rewatching, I was wondering if, are these guys part of those toughs who hang out on like the stoop <laughs> at the school who aren't, who aren't teenagers, you know, clearly, and they're not students, I'm guessing. I think they just hang out on the stoop outside Mr. Harris's classroom. The, the scene is a lot of fun and it actually has at least the second reference to the original Teen Wolf movie that I've noticed. Scott says, give me the bottle of whiskey. In like this very low guttural voice. And that happens in the Teen Wolf movie when 
Scott, played by Michael J. Fox, goes to try and get a keg of beer. And the guy at the liquor store isn't having it. And he's like, and his eyes glow. And he says, give me the keg of beer. And he gets the keg of beer. <laughs> well, that's just a great impersonation there, Will. It's very Spot good. On. Spot, Spot on. on. I mean, you would say, oh, my God, is Michael J. Fox on this <laughs> podcast now? How did that happen? How did we get him? We should try and get Michael J. Fox. <laughs> I mean, that would be absolutely outstanding. Right. So. Wow. We tried to get him for the show. Couldn't make it work, but that would have been fun. So. <laughs> I told you all that, right? You guys. I told you all that he was going to be the he was going to be the the lacrosse coach from Hill Valley. Oh. In one scene, oh. it's like they're playing. It was like going to be like during one of the lacrosse scenes, and like they're playing against Hill Valley, and it's just like the Cyclones lose or whatever, and Coach Finn Sox like losing his mind, and then he would just kind of slide up next to him and like put his arm around his shoulder and be like, "That's rough. Next time." Or something like that. It was going to be something super small, I like very, very small. We couldn't get it to work. And, that sounds uh, so fun. It would have been fun. It would have been a lot of fun. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, that would have been great. So all us older people here <laughs> would have really loved that reference. Yes, absolutely. After Scott and Styles have left, the Alpha attacks the two guys, throwing one of them into garbage fire. Throwing isn't even exactly the right word. He, he just kind of like shoves him headfirst into yeah. a barrel fire, and it's awful. It's 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 almost like a like a dunk. Yeah, right. You know, like awful. like he's he's got his little dunkaroos, <laughs> and the the, the graham cracker is uh, a local hooligan. Will um, a tough? And, I use the word and, tough. And the, the the cream dip is an actual trash fire. Yes, it should have just said the year twenty twenty on it. Yeah, it's a hell of a kill. It is. It's rough. Like I just feel. I I feel it watching it. I'm like this is awful. Like I would hate for something like this to ever happen to me. Or, oh my god, I don't know think about. It. But I will say, I feel like the moment is undercut just a little bit when we have like the POV shot going into the fire and then we cut wide to like the camera tracking behind some bushes or whatever, and the legs sticking out of the fire are clearly like a dummy. <laughs> And, Sorry, they uh, could use a real person for that will. Hey, I'm just saying some people are didn't methods. notice. Daniel Day Lewis would have done it. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> Scott's no good, very bad mood continues at home where he snaps at his mother when she tries to get him to talk about his breakup. And this is just so uncalled for. There's no reason to be mean to Mama McCall. She's Never. a great mom. I know she's perfect and everyone is so mean to her. That's what her memoir is going to be called. I was perfect and everyone was so mean to me. <laughs> I'd buy it. I would buy it and it would be true. Yeah. I feel like that's probably like the biggest, like the biggest betrayals kind of moving forward in the show. It's like that. It's like if Scott and, and Mama call are like not on the same page about something. Yeah. Always hurts the most. Always hurts the most. <laughs> Things are equally tense in the Argent household. Chris insists on himself and Kate dropping Allison off at school and Allison bristles at what she perceives as his overprotectiveness. Chris admits to Kate that the danger is greater than he'd imagined. And she was right that they should have acted against the local werewolves sooner. Every scene with Kate is creepy. I couldn't even pinpoint what about Kate in this particular scene is creepy. And yet it was. I can pinpoint it. It's the moment she leans over her brother and like gives him that like, little smirk as she unlocks the door she did not need to lean over him like that that's the moment it's it's because she's continuing the flirty attitude that she has with so many other people except for this is her brother like yeah i think that's just what her face and body language look like all the time 
that she doesn't have like an off switch in that regard. Yeah. Mm. She's you always know? trying yeah. to take advantage of or find the weakness or something. And I feel like flirty. Right. Because she's she's very beautiful. She's very beautiful. So flirty is probably the the easiest way. The easiest way to get what she wants is maybe that. And if that doesn't work, she just starts punching and stabbing. Because <laughs> um, I, I feel like flirty, quote unquote, on Kate Argent is just manipulation with a smile. Yeah. yeah. No, absolutely. Her persona here is very similar to, yeah, what we see her use on other people. And I think it's just alarming to see that when directed towards her own family. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I see that. Allison questions her own decision to break up with Scott, but Lydia reminds her that Scott locked them in a room and left them for dead. I feel like people are kind of piling on Scott a little bit. So, but I, I, it's just one of those things like I get like everyone's point of view because of the information they have in the moment type of thing. Or don't have. Or don't have, maybe. right. It's just like whatever information they're operating with, I get. So like, I understand Lydia having this belief system and in Scott based on what happened that night from her perspective. But it's just like, no, that's not what happened. Uh. I mean, Scott says he wants to try to explain to Allison what was going on. I really wanted to hear that explanation. And I feel like he should be going up to Jackson and Lydia and trying to explain as well. Yeah. Because he knows it'll get to Allison from them. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't understand why he doesn't at least attempt that because, yeah, I mean, there's no way for them to easily like interpret what was going on why did he do that yeah i understand allison saying i can't trust you because there's something you're clearly keeping from me yeah right and when she says the thing about i can tell when you're lying and you've been lying all night that's not even incorrect you know she just doesn't have any context for why he might have a good reason for lying but it's not like she's wrong about that you know her father and kate are lying to her as well at least she suspects it strongly it's easier to cut scott off than her family and i feel like she's reaching a breaking point with everyone in her life lying to her Yeah, yeah i think she feels like it's almost there's a pylon to her like everyone's joining the let's lie to allison club right you know, and she's about sick of this club. Yeah. <laughs> and to your point, she she feels like, well, Scott's someone that I met just very recently. It's it's easier for me to, at minimum, press pause on that relationship than it is to cut off my entire family. But that doesn't mean that she is just going to accept their deception either. It, it's very clear in this episode that she's been very intentionally putting pieces together from looking at the glass on Kate's car to eavesdropping occasionally on Chris and Kate. She is taking steps to figure out their deception too. It's just that with Scott, there's kind of an easier way, which is just for the time being to cut him out of her life altogether. As the manhunt for Derek Hill continues, Styles tries to ensure his dad is on high alert. Of course, he can't admit to his dad that he'll be in even more danger tonight because it's the night of the full moon. The sheriff says he's got it covered and even brought in a state detective. It's always a good thing in stories when they're like, I brought in the feds. Yes, it, always goes it, it perfectly. is. I really feel for Styles because we know how concerned he is for his father and he can't do anything about that. He has no way to protect him. Yeah. We saw how upset he was after what happened with the mountain lion. And I think, I still feel like it's unreasonable, but I feel like he lashed out at Scott because he felt so helpless. Right. Yeah. And I 
I still feel like it's something that should have happened later in the season, but going back to like what's going on with Allison, he has to just keep lying to his father and, you know, it gets to the point where the sheriff realizes that Stylus is lying to him. Yeah. There's only so much can, can like play pretend on that whenever horrible things are going on around town yeah. without it becoming obvious that there's something going on and Styles is just hiding it. I, I think part of the problem for Styles is that it's hard to determine what is the best way to help protect his dad. I mean, is it to keep him out of the loop or would it be better to share what he knows? I think right now Styles is operating under the assumption that keeping this information from his dad is protecting him. But I also think that you can see a little bit of self-doubt there. Like, would it be better if I could just say, dad, it's a full moon and there are werewolves in Beacon Hills. So really be on high alert tonight. Yeah. You know, there there's a, that feeling of like, well, obviously this wouldn't be the situation where it would be appropriate to spit out, but it's a full moon and there are werewolves, you know, there are other people around. But generally at this point in the story, I do feel like there's probably that conversation going on in Styles' head. Like, am I making the right decision by withholding this information? Because granted, Styles is kind of more at risk in part because of what he knows, but he also has a little bit more of an opportunity to protect himself based on that knowledge. I don't feel like it's because of what he knows. I feel like it's his association. Like if he had found out about werewolves and then walked away from Scott, he wouldn't have been more at risk. No one was going to kill him because of what he knew or discovering werewolves. Derek never threatened him. Like if you out me as being a werewolf, I'll kill you. That's true. He only ever threatened Scott. So I feel like it's only because of the company he keeps, so to speak. Because he had just decided, okay, I'm done with you, Scott he wouldn't have encountered any more danger. Yeah. Well, I mean, maybe eventually just crossfire because it's Beacon Hills. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. That's going like to Vegas happen. Like, isn't of, like, Gotham. Who knows what could <laughs> happen. But I feel like it's because he is dedicated and he is a loyal friend. That's what puts him in danger. And honestly, I do feel like he should have told his father early on. I feel like that was the right decision. What do you guys think? I'm conflicted. Because it is that thing where it's like, I have information. The world is dangerous. But if I give someone this information, the world becomes more dangerous type of thing. Where it's like, if I give someone this information, will that put them in harm's way? Will that increase the chances of them being hurt? Or if I leave them in the dark, are their chances just normal people chances? You know, that everyone, everyone's kind of like in Beacon Hills on an even playing field because nobody knows about supernaturals. But if you tell them, are they now more likely to because they have this information to get hurt. And I think this is a great example of a scene where, because I, I have many pet peeves when it comes to storytelling. And one of the worst is I hate when characters withhold information because there needs to be drama, you know? But I think this is a great example. Kate, I saw that face. I'm not saying we never did it. I'm not saying we never did it. I just don't like it. But I think this is a good example of a character withholding information from another character because they're scared. You know, where it's like, if I tell my dad this information, will I make it worse? Is, you know, type of thing. And Calissa, to what you said earlier in the previous scene, I feel like is a bad example of characters withholding information. Because Scott should definitely go, there's... I feel like Scott could explain himself to Allison or at least try. And then he could go to Lydia and explain himself because that information will then get back to Allison. Because there is a way I feel he could explain that night without having to be like monster, you know, where he could, or at least he could say like, this was my rationale at the time. Well, this is what I thought. I feel like 
Lydia gives him a very generous interpretation and it's true, but it's also something that like, it doesn't seem to occur to any other characters that he broke the key off to protect them so that no one could get in. Now it was, he was protecting them from himself at that point and the alpha could have still gotten in there if he wanted to. But as far as Lydia and everyone else knew, if he just broke the key off, it's unlikely that Derek in quotes, (laughs) the serial killer could have easily got in there if the key was broken off in the lock. But I, I, and I think that you're both right there because Styles is probably only in more danger, not necessarily because he knows about supernatural things, but because his knowledge translates into his actions. You know, he knows yes. this, therefore he's getting into the fray, but he probably knows that his dad is the same way. Well, his dad you know, is. That his dad is the sort of person who, if he knew this information, he'd be like, well, I'm the sheriff, so... You know, I'm going to take care of this problem. I am not going to have yeah. werewolves attacking hunters and hunters attacking werewolves in my town. Yeah, I think he's probably, he styles, is probably correct if he thinks, well, my dad's like me. Yeah. If he knows, he'll have to do something. He will feel... Yeah that it's incumbent on him to do something. Yeah. Stalinsky is very much like Captain America in Civil War when he says, if I see something going sideways, I'm going to do something about it. I think because Styles grew up seeing his dad be a good lawman, that that's where he gets it from. Whereas the type of thing is like, if I see something happening, I can't not do something. And if Stalinsky does have that knowledge about monsters, if he's like, well, if I see a monster, I have to, I have to help. I can't not do it. Well, it should be noted that the sheriff is sort of a lawful good, whereas Styles is more of a chaotic good. Yes. Yes. I love that about Styles. <laughs> Mr. Harris administers an e-contest, but Scott flees, unable to breathe, and Styles follows him. Styles gives him an inhaler and explains that he was having a panic attack, not an asthma attack, but the placebo effect helped him recover. Styles himself used to have panic attacks after his mother's death. I really like the scene with the test questions changing on Scott so that he has a multiple choice instead about, are you going to kill some of your friends tonight? all of your friends tonight. This is just a really smart moment to show his anxiety and sense of dread without just telling the audience, Scott is feeling anxious. Right. It's a great yeah. prelude yeah. to the uh, panic attack. Agreed. It is very good. It's very good. What's not very good about this scene are the insert shots of the test that are of clearly an economics test when Mr. Harris is the chemistry teacher. Like, coach was sick that What's day. What's happening? Is that, oh, is that <laughs> coach? Which, Got himself too riled up earlier in, in the episode. <laughs> he did. And he had to take a day? Yeah. Okay. He, well, or, or they put him on a, a one-day probation for <laughs> uh, inappropriate behavior in the classroom, which has to happen frequently. Right? Has to. Has to. Hard cut to Coach Finstock with the, with the principal. <laughs> and he's like, and he's like, Coach, you can't talk about units around kids. Like, <laughs> you, you can't. You can't you talk about them rubbing their units together. We've had this discussion before. And yet here we are again. I feel like a, a rep from the teachers union probably just lives at the school. Yeah, they just like in the middle of the night, their phone <laughs> rings. The The caller ID says BHHS and they're like, no, no. Oh, that's great. I it's was just over there two weeks ago. <laughs> <laughs> I love that, Calissa. It's 4 a.m. What could he possibly have done? <laughs> no, that's great. <laughs> I know this is Scott's scene, but Styles just breaks my heart here. This is the first reference I think we get from Styles that his mother has passed. I know Sheriff had told Coach about her, 
but I don't think Styles had talked about it before now. Yeah, this is definitely the first time we we hear it from Styles' perspective. Yeah, and it's just like a little throwaway thing almost that he had panic attacks because I I know the focus is really on Scott, but it just tells us so much about Styles and just one sentence of dialogue. Yeah. Right, definitely. And really I good. really relate to that. I feel like there aren't that many stories that kind of acknowledge that grief can be scary, mm-hmm. among other things. I mean, grief can be crushing. It can be distracting. You know, it can be all sorts of things, but it can also be scary and, and cause anxiety as kind of like a secondary phenomenon. I've, I feel like I've experienced grief that way where it it sort of manifests as anxiety because you start thinking about like human frailty and you know and knowing that when you've lost someone it just it just reminds you that you can lose other people in your life too and that can be really terrifying styles should have kissed scott to stop the panic attack that's a reference Ah! to a later season so stay tuned to get that joke i do really appreciate that a show has a character deal with panic attacks and uh, we get to see them on screen. I feel like that's something that's pretty rare. As someone who's dealt with anxiety and has personally had panic attacks, it's really refreshing to see other people deal with it Mm -hmm. and it not be something that's super taboo. Scott says that it wasn't just his breakup that caused the panic attack. He'd started to feel everyone else's emotions in the room. He'll need to be locked up tonight during the full moon because otherwise he might kill someone. Bum, 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 act out. <laughs> it's I love the dramatic. act outs on our shows. Yeah. Act out's gotta be dramatic. <laughs> you guys nailed it. It's like that whole like car starting to jump off the cliff and then it's like, come back next week to see if it makes it. Yes. Same Teen Wolf <laughs> time, same Teen Wolf channel. <laughs> So uh, Chris, Kate, Victoria, and several other hunters, including the state detective the sheriff brought in, discuss the plan for the night of the full moon. I'm terrified by the idea of hunters being in law enforcement. I mean, it makes sense that that's something they would do so they would have more access to resources and, you know, maybe to travel around the country where there are mysterious deaths. But it's so scary. And it would have to be so scary to be a werewolf and know that that was the case because then you could you would know that you could never go anywhere for help chris wants to patrol to protect innocents from werewolves who don't have control since the full moon can capture the focus of even an alpha werewolf he also thinks it might be a good opportunity for them to catch the alpha when asked about Derek, kate says that he's too smart to go out during the night of the full moon especially with all the cops around Victoria adds that if he is out that night, they should kill him and cut him in half. One of the low-key scariest characters on the show. Low-key? Well, low-key because I feel like (laughs) she she keeps a good facade in a way that I feel like someone like Kate doesn't. Like Okay, yeah. um, She's never out there yelling, come "Come on, on." yeah, come on, or I've always been a shotgun in the air. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, she 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 keeps it kind of under wraps. So like when she's at the high school, she's like, oh, we have a really good relationship with our daughter. And I mean, she's being sincere in that scene, but she also, that this is how we see the face that she presents to the outside world. Yeah. Then yeah. we see her in her element with other hunters and it's like, cut him in half. It's like, oh, <laughs> oh my God, the mask cookie. came off. Yeah. yeah. And then of course she follows it up with cookie. 
<laughs> and that's, if anything, more terrifying because, we, you know, we've talked previously about how Kate is just red flag city. And for some reason, there are multiple characters who don't seem to be able to recognize that. Mm-hmm. Victoria is not Red Flag City and for that reason that's why I say low key in the sense that she keeps it low key most of the time. Right. Yeah. And because of that when she says something really shocking like that really graphic and violent it takes you more by surprise. You know, mm-hmm. when Kate says horrific things you're like no that tracks. That that lines up her. perfectly with everything that I have ever believed about you as a character. <laughs> you know, whereas with Victoria it's like, oh, something happened. I really like though that with Kate and Victoria, they both say things that are scary. And Victoria's like cut him in half and you're like, I'm upset now. You've upset me greatly, madam. And um <laughs> but then for Kate's upset, it's it's when she comes up to you and she's like, "Hey, what's your name?" And you're like, oh, 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 nope, no, nope, no, nope. no, this is worse. Cut me in half instead. You know, pass, so pass. It's, it's it's so interesting how you can have characters just say opposite things with sort of the same intention, but it's just the way they say it. And also just how some of it feels so innocuous, but even that's like super dangerous. You right. know, it's, it's. There's yeah. a straightforwardness to Victoria, at least when she's surrounded by people where she knows that she can express those kinds of sentiments. Whereas Kate, I don't think any character really has a good handle on where they stand with her. Right. Well, that's because I don't think anyone stands anywhere with Kate. Kate's like, Kate it's not like there's a line and then it's like allies, enemies. There is a dot that says Kate above it and everyone <laughs> else is around it. And that's just assets yeah you know that that's kate everyone to kate is just i want something how do i get it from you due to a pink eye epidemic greenberg some of the first line (laughs) players won't be able to play at the next lacrosse game so some of the other players including styles get a chance i think you're wrong there i believe it's biles (laughs) that's right (laughs) that's true I love Styles' commitment to being called Biles in this scene. The whole, like, I swear to God, call me Biles or I will kill you. Yeah, it's, just- it, it's really funny. Also, Biles is a portmanteau for by Styles. So it, it works on multiple levels. Love it. It's like an onion. <laughs> the coach also announces that instead of having Jackson as the lacrosse team captain, they'll now have two captains, Jackson and Scott, which angers Jackson. Some of the other players decide to put Scott in traction out of loyalty to Jackson, but Danny, Jackson's own best friend, says they all need to acknowledge that Scott is a good player and let it go. Danny's awesome. He <laughs> he's is. just totally. like, he, and he's so even keeled. And I feel like that's what makes his friendship with Jackson so interesting because Jackson is kind of, I don't want to say like mercurial per se, because there, there is some degree of consistency with Jackson. It's just consistency of the asshole variety. But but Danny is just very calm and objective and is able to look at this and be like, guys, Scott's a really good player. So they made him co-captain. Yeah. End of story. Like, calm down. Yeah. You know, he's just so he's the bumpers, right? In the in the gutters where where Jackson is the the bowling ball. I love his face in the scene though, because I feel like you can 
just tell that he's gonna he feels like he's gonna have to hear this from Jackson for the rest of his I life. Know. <laughs> he totally has that expression on his face that's like, oh God, I'm gonna I, I'm never gonna hear the end of this. I'm never gonna hear the end of this shit. But he's not gonna leave Jackson as a friend. So he's like, he's ah, I've, I've made my bed. I gotta sleep with it now. But he's I also think. not the sort of person just to tell Jackson what he wants to hear. And right. this scene yeah, makes that very exactly. clear, right? That Jackson's like, yeah. oh, is that my best friend's opinion? And he's like, Man, your best friend's opinion is let it go. Yeah. <laughs> Just let yeah. it go. I, I really wish we had gotten a lot more Jackson and Danny throughout the entire season. I mean, we get them together and all that, but like actual dedicated scenes and stuff like that, yeah. or even mm-hmm. storylines would have been great just because I, I would like to have seen much more of the, the real dynamic between the two of them because, mm-hmm. you know, Jackson postures, you know, yes. and, and Danny is very much like not around me, though. You know, that's not how this works. Like we've been friends since we were, you know, you know, knee high and, and all that type of stuff. And it's like, just, you don't have to do that. Like, just stop, stop that. Yeah. You know, and if Jax is like bitching about something, it's like, who cares? I, I think that's part of why, you know, kind of despite all the posturing, I think that's probably why Danny is his best friend. You know, other friends will come and go, the ones that will just be yes men. But the yeah. the one who's like, yeah, I'm, I'm not just gonna beat up another their player because your butt hurt like it's not gonna yeah. happen you know <laughs> That's not- like he's going to tell jackson the truth yeah and speaking of yes man i feel like long-haired we're gonna put him in jackson guy i don't think we ever see him after the end of this season so he got kicked to the curb maybe like i said those guys come and go but danny is forever Danny's forever. Scott tells Styles that he could smell Jackson's jealousy. Styles asks Scott to use his wolfy senses to go find out whether he has a chance with Lydia. Scott agrees, but when he goes to Lydia, she says that Allison only likes him as a friend now, whereas Lydia understands that he locked them in the room to protect them, and she's grateful. They kiss. Yet Scott goes back to Styles and tells him that Lydia is into him. Poor Biles. <laughs> <laughs> Scott Scott didn't have to tell Styles that Lydia was into him. That was just extra cruel. I don't know why the moon brings out his dick side so much. I understand aggression, but why just, why does he have to be shitty? Right. It's not, it would be, I think, a little easier to get past as pure aggression. You know, the, when he would sort of lose control and like claws flashing and everything towards Styles. That made a lot more sense. This feels so much more calculated. Yeah. yeah. There's a calculatedness, which reminds me, I love Lydia in the scene between her and Scott because to Holland Roden's credit, I feel like you know what she's about to do from the beginning of that scene. It's just written on her face. Yeah. yeah. He assesses the situation, decides the most advantageous move and proceeds to make the move even in like you know so like when you take this scene but then put it in the context of the scene earlier when she's talking to Allison it kind of feels like to me at least that that some form of this moment is already in her head that telling Allison what she needs to hear is helping her get something you know that it's like keeping all these possibilities open so it's like this it's like this constant like flow chart going on in her head of like, which decision gets, you know, keeps me safe, you know? And right now Mm kind of, you know, Scott and and Allison being on the outs is the best thing because Mm -hmm. if now Scott is kind of rising up in the ranks, then maybe I I need to put my lot in with him instead of Jackson. 
Right. And so it's, it's, it's very interesting to see how her mind is working in that way. And it's heartbreaking, but also Holland just knocks it out of the park, just yes, knocks out these, these, it feels like radical character swings sort of in different ways, but you're like, this is all calculation. And I, I think that's how it would feel if, if her acting didn't express what's going on in her head, you can read on her face that this is a calculated move. Yeah. And like you said, with the conversation that she had with Allison earlier, this feels like a move that's following up that previous move. I, I was yeah. going to compare not to a flow chart, but more to a gambit, like in the chess sense of the word. Okay. You know, like I need to move Allison this way and then I need to move Scott this way and then I need to move Jackson this yeah. way. I think that's how she thinks. I think everyone in Beacon Hills should consider themselves damn lucky that Lydia never went full villain. On the lacrosse field, Scott loses control and hurts Danny, whom everyone loves. Styles says that'll make everyone hate Scott, but Scott says he doesn't care. Meanwhile, Jackson notices that Lydia's lipstick is smudged and Styles pieces together what really happened, which is a very painful moment. It is. It is. Very upsetting. I feel like an adaptation of Danny's role in the internal politics of Beacon Hills would be called Everyone Loves Him, the Danny Mahilani story. That's right. He's just so great. How could He's you so not great. love him? He's just nice to everybody and everybody likes him. So when you see him get, you know, knocked around on the field and you see him through the mask, he's got blood on your mouth. He's like, oh no. You know, immediately not everyone's, Danny. Like giving, every, not Danny. everyone's immediately giving blood at the hospital and all this just to make sure <laughs> right, he's right. okay. They interview nurses. They're like, we've never had more donations. Yeah. Not National Treasure, Danny Mahilani. <laughs> <laughs> He's the Ferris Bueller of this town. He is, yeah. But yeah, I just really feel for Styles once he figures it out. I don't Ugh. love his crush on Lydia in the early seasons, but I, I still think it's just really heartbreaking because, you know, he trusts Scott so much. I feel like if he came back and said, Lydia's not into you at all, Styles would have been hurt, but he would have moved on. Right. But to find out not only that Scott lied to him, but that then Scott also made out with her. It, it's just such a betrayal. Right. So when he, he's been doing so much for. It's really heartbreaking. It's rough. Cause it's, you're seeing like this, this fissure come between two best friends and it's just not fun, especially when what y'all were just saying, where it's like Scott's it, it's, it's one thing that the full moon brings out aggression and rage and mm-hmm. all that, but it seems to bring out just cruelty. As well. Yeah, like he just woke up on the douche side of the bed. Yeah, and it just, it's it's rough. It's so rough to see. It's just a knife twist is what it is. Casey was Allison how to use a taser to help her feel less vulnerable. Allison mentions Scott known Derek, and Kate insists that Allison tell her everything she knows about the two of them. I want to know if Allison thinks this is weird. Like, does she question why Kate is so fixated on knowing the details about Derek and Scott's relationship? As far as we've seen, Kate's met Scott once, and she shouldn't really have any knowledge of who Derek is outside of just like him being wanted by the police. Which she does say, wait, accused killer Derek Hale? So there there is that, but I I, I think the the urgency of it feels a little off. It's not like, let's doss about this. Like, I want to know everything. That sounds really interesting. It's tell me everything right now. Right. And she kind of grabs Allison when she's- Yeah, she like grabs her arm and pulls her back and and gets really close. And it's, it's kind of- it's intense. Allison must be feeling very, I don't know what the, you know, scared maybe or whatever in this moment because 
as far as she is seen from Kate, you know, she's her awesome aunt who's more like a sister. And then all of a sudden this turn comes and, you know, it's like that arm grab is that one where you kind of press your thumb into it just a Mm -hmm. little bit harder than you need to. And Mm -hmm. I almost wanted Allison when Kate's like, tell me everything you know about Derek Hill. I wanted Allison to be like, why Kate Argent, my aunt who sells milkshake mixers, this, <laughs> you know, where it's just like this, there's, why is this important? Cause we don't even know what Kate does. Like she, she probably works for Argent Arms. I assume right, right. she's probably like their on the road guy type of thing. Mm-hmm. And this is a turn. And I really wish there'd been a little bit more from Allison of her being like, why does this Yeah. Matter? I wanted Allison to ask why. Especially because she, we already know that she is starting to experience some doubt about her relationship with both her dad and Kate. Yeah. Because she she thinks that they've both lied to her, right? Mm-hmm. It's not just right. her dad. She yeah. thinks my dad's lying to me, my aunt's lying to me, my boyfriend's lying to me, it, you know. So I really wanted to see a little bit of that in this scene and her kind of being like, where is this coming from? Yeah. Style surprises Melissa at the McCall home and explains that he had a key made. Melissa asks how Scott is doing since he doesn't really talk to her anymore. Styles says that Scott has had a rough week, and Melissa tells Styles to watch out tonight since it's the full moon, which always brings out the crazies. In fact, that's where the word lunatic comes from. I I love this bit. I it's I love wonderful. when they when they bring in some etymology here. This yes, is a great that's little scene. So fitting. Of course, that's what you're you're latching onto in the scene. And I think the the thing I love most about this scene is like in the previous episode, Styles didn't have a key, and then in this and they mention they call it out, and then in this one, he's like, I should get a key made, and he just does. He just now has a key to the front door. Yeah, somewhere in between those episodes, yeah, he's like, he wait, just was like, why don't oh, I, I just have a key? Yeah. I'm, I'm gonna do it. I'm just, I'm just gonna, gonna do, do it. it. I'm shocked it's taken this long for Styles to get a key. I feel like you know he pretty regularly broke into the house, so well, why did it take him so long? I mean, Melissa was still pretty shocked at saying like, "What are you doing here?" Rather than "Oh my god, this again." So I feel like probably his breaking into the McCall home accelerated after that fateful yeah. night. Very true. Very true. true. He now has more reasons to break and or enter. <laughs> she notices that he also seems to have a big bag of chains that he says is for a school project. I'm surprised she just doesn't ask about that, but. Maybe she thinks they're experimenting with some stuff. <laughs> that night, Styles handcuffs Scott to a radiator, partially because of the full moon, partially because he knows Scott made out with Lydia. He also brings Scott water in a dog bowl, which is awesome. Shots fired, Styles. A hundred percent deserved. Like absolutely. He needed a little bit of, you know, bringing back down to earth. I know Derek would appreciate the dog jokes, but I, I feel like it's it <laughs> is. is. But I feel like this was actually the nicest way I feel like Styles could have handled it because what Scott did was really horrible to Styles. Yeah. I feel like he was just, you know, presuming cruel behavior with cruel behavior. Like Yeah. Not healthy, but, but I can understand it. But it didn't like hurt Scott really on like an emotional level. Scott was way past that point even. I feel like it was more I feel like Styles got more out of it than Scott. I, right. Yeah, I, I agree. And I and I think especially because, you know, you said like, oh, Derek would hate that. And that's absolutely true. But it's different for Scott. Like Scott, Scott doesn't have any pride around the fact that he's a werewolf. Right. Mm-hmm. Whereas for Derek, obviously it's different. He was born a werewolf. His family were mostly werewolves. And he's spent a lot of his life basically just trying to prove that they deserve to exist. And yeah. 
aren't horrible monsters. So for him, yeah, this would be really egregious and it would be really insulting to his family's memory. Scott low-key hates werewolves still because he feels like the alpha ruined his life, which isn't even necessarily untrue, but he kind of has shown himself to be more sympathetic toward the hunters than toward other werewolves. Also, just a fun little fact here. Whenever Kate threw a Teen Wolf birthday party for me, one of the gifts from one of my friends was a dog bowl with my name written on it and stickers. That's awesome. It was great. That's so great. I (laughs) I still have it. Allison and Jackson have a heart to heart, both saying they don't believe that it was really Derek in the school the other night. Yeah, I am glad that they finally acknowledged this because I didn't understand why everyone was just going along when they knew that that wasn't possible. They saw what was going on, that they were being chased. It wasn't just a serial killer guy. And, you know, they were like, okay, but if it's Derek, why would he target us? And probably Allison's thinking like, wait, if he wanted, if Derek wanted to target me, why wouldn't he have just done that? That time I willingly got into his car in the middle of the night. Yeah, And I mean, that that does make sense. It's like, okay, so you're telling me that this guy had the perfect opportunity to do something bad to me, but now he like sent a text supposedly from you to draw me to a school so he could trap me in a classroom and kill me. He, that makes no sense. And right. it, it is kind of validating to hear them say that because, you know, watching night school, I was like, Scott, what? That doesn't even make any sense. And right. now you have these two characters being like, that makes no sense. <laughs> I understand where they were coming from. No one wants to be the person I feel like be like, hello, why are we all going along with this? That's clearly crazy. Right. But if Styles was the one who didn't know about Scott, I feel like Styles would have been the one to point out. Absolutely. And obviously yeah. he has to go along with it for Scott's benefit, but or he thinks he has to. Yeah. But it is still just frustrating as a viewer for yeah. them not to have this conversation earlier. So Allison adds that she thinks even her dad is lying to her and that he might know more about what happened in the school than they do. So then Jackson kind of put at ease by Allison being super honest with him, explains what he saw that night in the high school. Someone who looked like a man when standing up, but ran on all fours like an animal. That's my favorite moment in that episode when Jackson sees the alpha standing up. You're like, it's totally a dude. And then he yeah. lopes away and you're like, that's totally not a dude. And, <laughs> it's, no, it's, it's, it's very like unsettling. I like this moment between Jackson and Allison because it's vulnerability between right. both of them. You know, like it's like, it feels like it's an inherent vulnerable act to actually say something you believe that no one else is saying. That like, it's mm-hmm. like we have to almost whisper and talk about it in this car where no one can hear us because what we're talking about is crazy type right. of thing. And it's great because I like in these type of stories when there's so much crazy happening but then it's not touching people yet but then when it does start to touch people it's like people start to find each other when they've all been touched by the crazy and i like those moments and obviously it's a it's a great two-hander between jackson and allison but i really like just these little moments where we're still continuing to peel back the layers on jackson it's fun i really love their relationship together because they definitely bring out an interesting side of one another Mm -hmm. It's kind of, it's it's a strange relationship. Yeah, you know? I, it is I feel strange. like Allison allows herself to be vulnerable in a way she doesn't want to portray with Scott. Like she doesn't want to give 
I'm not sure why, because obviously she's trusts. Well, she had trusted him and uh, she cares about him, but it goes back to like, you know, I feel like she doesn't want to be seen as like too masculine, but too girly girl. I feel like she doesn't want to have those conversations with Scott. I feel like maybe just because she doesn't see Jackson romantically, it allows her to open up to him. Yeah, yeah I, I completely agree. And that's the irony of Scott being jealous about them, because I think you're completely right. I think the fact that Jackson doesn't rate to her yeah. is what allows her to be more vulnerable around yeah. him. Because in this episode, particularly, we hear Allison talking about how much she hates that feeling of being vulnerable. And right. yet in that same episode, we see her allowing herself willingly to be vulnerable around Jackson yeah. of all people. And it's like, why is that? And I think that is probably why that because she disliked him understandably so much early on, I, I feel like that almost created a strange kind of safety with him because it's like, oh, I'm not actually that worried about what you think about <laughs> right. me you yeah. know so like if this yeah. conversation goes south I don't care that much so it's kind of this weird situation where like she actually allows herself to get closer to Jackson because she doesn't place that much value on her relationship with Jackson mm -hmm. despite Styles's efforts Scott escapes and tracks Allison and Jackson although they're just talking Scott hallucinates that they're kissing Derek shows up and stops him from attacking them just in time. Woo! He, Sorry. He fight, you know, he's always just wa watching from the shadows. So he <laughs> probably was just tracking Scott until he was like, okay, now I have to step in. Yeah. <laughs> he's like muttering to himself while he's walking towards Scott. Like, I'm not even, I'm just, I'm just going to see what happens. I'm not even going to help him. He's such an asshole. I'm going to let whatever happens happen because I warned him and he basically told me to go eat a dick. So I'm just, you know what? No, I'm just going to let it happen. I don't even care. And he's like stomping all, you know, <laughs> scowly. He's got an expression like grumpy cat going. He's just like yeah. stomping his way over there and he, he, his arms are folded. He's like, I'm just going to stand here. I don't care. He, he could kill those two other kids. I don't, oh God, I'm going to step in, aren't I? God damn it. God damn it. And then he does it. That's yeah. how I imagine that going. I think that it really shows that Derek is a good person because he doesn't want Allison to die. You know, he, he wants to stop Scott from killing her. I think because he doesn't want Scott to have to live with that, but also he knows Allison at this point in time is innocent. Right. He doesn't transfer. It's not like the sins of her family. He doesn't yeah. put that on her. I don't feel like I would judge him too harshly if he was like, you know, f*** it. Let her die. Yeah. <laughs> I wash my hands of this. Yeah. Right. But he keeps intervening to help save her. And Jackson even. And Jackson. He also yeah. kind of hates. Yeah. Right. Everyone kind of hates Jackson. So. Yeah. But that does seem interesting because you're right. Like in, it feels like in most stories where you have a character who's has some horrible trauma that was mm -hmm. perpetrated by like a group of people. They also tend to hate anyone related to the group of people right. who like touched, you know, and so it's the father. Yeah, exactly. You, I feel like you would totally expect Derek to be like, Allison, you know, it's like, she's an Argent. Argents are murderers. Therefore, Allison is a murderer type right. of thing. Well, and it doesn't I, seem to be that. Yeah. Yet, where he's just like, she doesn't even know about it. So I feel like he's worried about what she might become. But at this point he knows. Yeah. That he, he's worried for Scott. If he stays in this relationship, but 
he knows that yeah Allison is innocent yeah or now <laughs> yeah but yeah I mean it's like there's nothing I don't feel like at this point Derek from a like a self-centered perspective he doesn't really have a reason to intervene here like mm-hmm. worst case scenario Scott kills those two other kids and then Scott gets killed by hunters and then Derek I don't know, moves to Florida or something. Like, no, there's not... why would you give him that horrible fate? Because <laughs> that's, he would obviously still punish himself. Um... <laughs> I can see him just standing on the beach in his leather jacket, just hunched and scowling. scowling. He's like, this is no fun. Yeah. As everyone's having a great time with beach balls. And stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. But yeah, like, I don't feel like he really, I mean, he, he doesn't want werewolves to be exposed. Mm-hmm. But for the most part in a situation like this, I feel like it would more be just both sides destroying each other. Like Scott kills Jackson and Allison, the Argents kill Scott and then cover it up because that's what they do. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. he doesn't super have to do this, but I think he actually doesn't want Scott to have to live with killing someone. Yeah. Right. And actually the whole, even like in terms of getting Scott to help him find the alpha, you know. Right. He actually, he's starting to walk away. He wasn't even going to say anything to Scott about that. He's just going to be like, here's your bedroom. Here I go. And then Scott is like, wait, no, 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 no. I want to talk about some things. And that's when that comes about. I mm-hmm. I feel like his, he wasn't even going to do that. He was just going to be like, well, I prevented a couple murders. Goodbye. <laughs> it really shows that he must have incredible control because, you know, they say that, the sway of the moon is so strong that, you know, even born wolves would be affected, but he doesn't seem to be affected at all. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He ne- we really never see him lose control in like a wolfy way. Right. We yeah. occasionally see him like lose his temper in a human way, a flawed human way, mm-hmm. but it's never like, oh, the pull of the moon is so strong. I just am filled with bloodlust. We never see that from him. And it makes sense because he was born a werewolf. He's been working on gaining this control his whole life. And then when we learn more about his anchor, we learn that it's something that he always has with him. So, you know, it it makes sense. But it's also just interesting that the Argents don't seem to have any concept of that. You know, because they say the thing about how oh, even the alpha is going to be completely out of control during the full moon. And they don't know whether the alpha is bitten or born. Yeah. I don't think they even would have necessarily known that Laura was an alpha when she was killed. They knew she was a werewolf. Yeah. You know. I was wondering, like, if the hunters are like, yeah, even the alpha, you know, Derek's too smart. He's going to, he's, you know, he's going to feel the temptation of the moon and all this. So he's not going to come out tonight. You know, even the alpha is going to feel it too. And you're right. We never see that from Derek. And I was like, I wonder if like a long time ago, someone, a hunter was talking to like a captured wolf or something like that, uh, like a born wolf. And they're like, yeah, even, even y'all have a rough time on full moons. And the wolf was like, sure. (laughs) Yes, we do. Where it's just like, let them believe this thing. Because mm-hmm. it's like they don't understand that we are always in control. At a certain point, you learn. You learn they how to They don't understand it. our culture. Exactly. I am not going to waste my time trying to explain it's it. It's not my them. responsibility That's right. to explain to you. But uh, but just as a defensive mechanism where it's like, let them believe that. You know, let them believe misinformation because that 
can help us at some point. I wonder why the moon is causing Scott to hallucinate kissing. Like with everything going on, is this seriously like his biggest concern right now? Yes. He has the <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The alpha wants to like werewolf horn. Make him part of his pack. Yeah. He knows the hunters are after him and everything. He's still like, oh my God, is Allison going to kiss Jackson? Yeah. Like what? Yeah, actually, to your point, Will, I feel like maybe for bitten wolves in particular, the full moon just sort of turns everything up to 11. So like mm-hmm. whatever's naturally occurring, it just gets more intense. Yeah. Right. So you like perceive other people's moods and stuff. But on the full moon, it's like I can smell jealousy. I can smell all sorts of I can, you know, hear people's hearts beating. I can perceive all these things. My senses are so heightened right now. Right. And so I suppose if you're always a baseline of regular horny, then during the full moon, you're like horniest. (laughs) There's like regular human horny. And then there's, I've been turned into a werewolf hornier. And then there's, I've been turned into a werewolf and it's a full moon horniest. Derek shows up and stops him from attacking them just in time. He fights Scott until Scott regains some semblance of control. Like we've talked about this in previous episodes that Scott is the sort of person where it's not that he isn't intelligent. It's that his priorities are very stark. There is one thing that he is focused on in a given moment and everything else kind of falls away and whatever it is that he's focused on kind of creates these blinders, these, these blind spots for him. And in, I'd say most of the episodes in season one, that focus is Allison. Yeah. And so to me, it's like, oh yeah, of course that in this moment, he knows that the alpha is out there, wants to kill him or make him kill others. There are hunters that are after him He accidentally told the whole world that Derek is a serial killer who then died or something. Or no, he, he, he believed that Derek was dead, but didn't tell anyone that it there, there's a lot of messy, messy, dangerous stuff going on. And he's like, Oh my God, is Allison going to kiss Jackson? Yeah. And it's like, I I remember in one of the earlier episodes, there's the scene where Scott and Styles are in the Jeep and, Scott's like, oh, you know what the worst part is? And Silas is like, if you say Allison. <laughs> and then he's like, because she really hates me now. And it's like, <laughs> Silas is like, oh, I'm going <laughs> to you a little bit. <laughs> and I think, you know, that is, that is something that Styles and Derek share in some situations, which is that they both want the best for Scott in their very different ways, but they also both sometimes lose their patience with that myopic view (laughs) that he has sometimes where it's like, oh, God damn it, you're going to say, Allison, I'm going (sighs) to count to 10, count to 10. Like, it's just, you know, they they get frustrated because it's like, do you know that there are other things that are happening to you that are also important? And Scott's like, but Allison, though. (laughs) Classic Scott. So in a burst of intuition, Kate brings up the second beta Chris had previously seen, which was smaller than Derek. She asks whether or not the beta could have been younger, too, and they begin to suspect Styles. Derek takes Scott home, and he's getting ready to leave when Scott stops him and says he wants Derek to be completely honest with him 
and say whether there's a cure, which I feel like when Derek hears that he's internally rolling his eyes, like it's not a disease, Scott, not a disease. But anyway, he takes the question at face value and says that he has heard of one, but he's not sure whether it's true. He's heard that a bitten wolf could be cured by killing the alpha who turned them. And if Scott helps Derek find the alpha, Derek will help Scott kill him. Jackson finds part of Scott's claw on his car and compares it to Scott's ripped lacrosse glove. Now Jackson is over there putting the pieces together finally. The pieces being claw plus glove equals werewolf. Werewolf. I really love this ending. I like it a lot. And it's, it's just, a good ending. It's so good. It, it's always and it's so great. dramatically filmed. Yes, it's <laughs> it is very like everything on Teen Wolf. Like yes. everything on Teen Wolf. Like if we finally got that like coffee shop AU, how dramatic would that be? Just like pouring the coffee, foaming the milk. Oh yeah. So dramatic. Slow-mo. <laughs> oh, so much slow-mo. All that steam. Mm, it's coming. Good stuff. Good stuff. But I love moments and stories when people put pieces together. And it all starts to make sense. I especially love it when it's bad guys who are starting <laughs> to learn things about the heroes. It's just so much fun. Because you see this scene with Jackson and he's putting this stuff together and you're like, this is awful. Like, this is going to go so poorly. But you're like, I can't wait to watch it go so poorly. Yeah. It's going to be so much fun because it's 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 just fantastic. I love the ending of this of this episode a lot. Me too. All right, Wolfies, we're going to jump over to our interview with Jonathan Hall, the director of photography for the first two seasons of Teen Wolf. Let's have a listen. Jonathan, how did Teen Wolf come into your life? Russell McKay and I did a film about a year before Teen Wolf where we were both, I was recommended from a, from a producer friend and we met and immediately we got along really well. We both had the same sort of vision and, and way that we like to talk about things. It all, it all married very well. But we went off and did this, this noir film and had a blast. It basically became me and Russell versus everybody, including the state we were shooting in and the production company. And we ended up making a great movie despite all these obstacles. And I think at the end of it, you know, he and I became good friends. Nice. And about four months after we wrapped that movie, he called me. He's like, I got a really strange thing I'd like to throw at you. And he, he didn't tell me what it was. Uh, the company had forwarded me the script and it said untitled on it. And after I read it, I called him and I said, is this, is this like the Michael J, is this Teen Wolf? And he's like, yeah. I'm like, hmm, really? <laughs> and then right after he's like, what do you think? I said, I think it's awesome. I would have never guessed you could have made some sort of not a campy version of that movie into a TV show. And the minute I said that, he's like, think Lost Boys. And I was like, I know exactly what you want. So nice. that's nice. Okay, so you were just kind of reading this script cold. I know that, you know, Scott McCall, or Scott Howard is now Scott McCall for the show. And Beacon Town, terrible name for a town, is Beacon <laughs> Hills. At what point did you start putting it together? Were you like, this feels oddly familiar in places? Thankfully, while I read it, I, the initial read of it, I didn't really remember all the details of the movie. I just knew there was a guy in high school that turned into a wolf. And uh, eventually I started thinking, this is really close to that movie that I watched once, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and, but then once, once he said that, or once I sort of picked up on it, I rewatched the movie and I'm like, man, I can't, I don't know what I could do with it. Like, I don't know how to make it anything. If it was going to be campy, if it's going to have the guy in a 
gorilla suit? Like, what? <laughs> how does this work on TV and it's not a comedy? It's the first concern I have. Right. And after he and Jeff, when I finally met Jeff, they both said we want it to be dark and not twilighty, but in that idea where it's a little bit more, in my terms, mean, a little, a little grittier. And because I, th- I feel like I, I like those shows. I, I felt like teen audiences might too. So you're credited as both a cinematographer and DP on Teen Wolf. Is there a difference between the two? I do, I do believe the director of photography term is newer. The original term is cinematographer because I think it was uh, along the lines of the cameraman. You know, there was a lighting team and a camera team. And I think at one time it was primarily a camera job. Now it sort of encompasses the whole thing. So cinematographer still re- refers mostly to hands-on shooters which I am on that, on the TV show, I operated as much as everybody would let me. So I'm definitely a hands-on guy. I think cinematographer is the right term. Okay. So can you explain to our listeners what the role is for a cinematographer for those who might not be as familiar with the term? It's a very long word for person that takes the idea from the writers, directors, and creative team and tells them how you can do it physically with lights, camera, and action in order to take something that's written and build it into a visual. If there's an intent on on a slug line that says the character is very scared in a room, but he doesn't say anything or she doesn't say anything, a cinematographer would be the person who could throw ideas at how can the camera show that they're very scared if they're not saying anything? Can the lighting make it a more scary environment? Can the movement that we do feel like we're closing in on them? Um, things like that. So I take I take the black and white word with the creative team and put it into a visual context that's understood. It's fantastic. Teen Wolf is a beautifully <laughs> shot series and kind of instantly makes its mark in season one with all these wonderful iconic shots and with a, a great show style. What was the process like of finding the look in the pilot and then also in season one of like what exactly Teen Wolf looks like? When the pilot was first going forward, it was both the dawning of shooting outside of California in Beeson Center State in, in, in Georgia, in Atlanta. There in 2009 or 10, there had been a few movies that had started going out there, but it was very, it was st- sort of just starting for anything that was not a big film that was going there for, you know, big set pieces that already existed or specific reasons to be there for the tax incentives and things like that. So we were the little guy that showed up with a little pilot from a little television company, you know, Viacom or MTV. It's not known for doing our dramas. This was the first one. We were kind of treated like the, the kid in the corner. And that also timed up with sort of the digital revolution with cameras evolving very quickly, had made everything that was shooting on television a different contract, so you couldn't shoot film. So Russell and I were film people. Mm-hmm. We did a movie on film, right? the one I talked about we did on 35 millimeter. He was a big film guy. We had to shoot videotape. And on the pilot, it was very limiting because it was, again, it was the dawn of this technology. Great images, just, really new. So the first thing that I told him, if we want to get the feel of 35 millimeter to get this sort of cinematic look that he and I are interested in, the best way to do it is to do it dark. And he's like, well, how dark? And I said, darker, the better, because the brighter stuff tends to not feel as 
cinematic. You can get away with a little bit more if it's a little bit lower light. They said, do it. Even the day scenes, just do it. Okay. <laughs> so, we, so we figured out how to make it look good on a pretty cheap budget. And I leaned into trying to make it feel more like, like a 90s action movie. If I was going to shoot a 90s action movie with lighting technology that existed then, big lights far away, cameras with long lenses, treating the digital tools we had like these old tools that we've had for 100 years. And we chose a colder color palette. We also happened to be in Georgia when it was nothing was in the trees because it was cold and everything had like a little bit of a moisture on it, which really added to it. We actually really leaned into that and we tried to stick with that throughout. Well, we, we knew that, you know, I got to meet the cast, uh, most of them before we went to do the pilot. A few of them got hired pretty right, at, right before we shot. But I met them and immediately I'm like, these, these kids look incredible. I could hit them with anything as far as the light goes and they're going to look great. They're good, <laughs> they bright, they're bright eyes, they're all smiles, they have great, you know, everything's going to be fine. We get, we, these kids glow in the dark. And then, <laughs> uh, you know, you're worried, you get worried sometimes, you know, some people really hate certain, you know, lighting hitting them or it makes them feel older or, or they, you know, doesn't like, they don't like certain attributes of different photography but we got lucky that our our casts were very photogenic fun <laughs> it helps it definitely helps how did you approach filming a scene that was heavy in visual effects that would be added in post i actually have a lot of experience shooting with computer generated additions and green screen and composite photography so on this it was a little different in the sense that a lot of the elements that we were doing were integrated and they were they were 100 necessary thematically and to the narrative both the eyes when the characters would have color changes in their eyes as well as some of these big chase sequences that needed to be ramped up so russell or tim or whoever was directing and i would sit down and have any sort of brainstorm session that would be how can we make these scenes the easiest possible way we can so not only because of our time but also my approach was if it's too big of a spectacle you're not going to win hollywood at their game i mean their game is big blockbusters you're not going to do better than a fast and the furious so the best thing that you can do on a small scale is to just do it different and to use all the tools to be not campy not odd don't draw too much attention but just make it cool so if we want somebody to run fast, can we just make them run fast in camera? Can we do something where we under crank? Can we do, you know what I mean? What do these tricks look like? And most of the time, at least in my opinion, simpler is better. So a lot of times we did it the old school way, if we could. And anything that was CG that had to have like a fake background plate, we did the simplest version of that. Use that one shot for that one gag and that's it. Very smart. Yeah, that's very cool. How would you characterize the visual style of Teen Wolf compared to other shows that you've worked on? Teen Wolf was the first TV series I'd ever actually shot. I was very young. I was coming straight out of the indie film world directly into a pilot that got greenlit and immediately went into production. So it was like a whirlwind. I think I was, when we shot day one on the actual show being greenlit, I was 26. And oh, I, wow. side note, I think I was the youngest to actually have an hour series. So I was very young. And for me to jump in with both feet there and learn the speed, the protocols, and sort of the, the people's opinions that are brought in at what time they're brought in, I wasn't used to that. So I learned a lot on the job on Teen Wolf as far as how 
how television is shot versus movie. So that Teen Wolf was my baseline. Later on in my career, when I went down to do other shows, and, including things like the uh, my my tiny bit on Walking Dead, our show was tiny comparatively. I, it was such a home. I didn't know it, but I realized really quickly that our show was such a small sort of crew base and such a ramped up speed because I I just assumed that's all how they were. But it wasn't. It was a Viacom doing their first TV show, so they were trying to be as very, put it all on the screen as possible, as fast as we can, as good as we can, but we have things we got to meet. And then I went on other shows and learned that, hey, wait a minute. How come these guys aren't doing twice as much stuff as us then? How come we're just barely making... Yeah, so I actually felt very good once I learned that other people were working almost half as much and getting about the same quality. That's the thing. <laughs> I, yeah. I, you know, I'd go on these, a, a bigger show that was twice the size and it'd be like, oh, that's, that's how we're shooting today? Okay. <laughs> You also worked on Open Gate with Tyler Hecklin. Was that filmed before Teen Wolf? And what was it like working with him on both projects? So Open Gate was, I have a small company with a friend that does indie movies that we do physical production on. And that was one of my partner's projects out of Texas. It was a rodeo movie. And we had just finished shooting the pilot for Teen Wolf. And when my partner wanted to put this movie together, he was looking for somebody who was basically tired. I mean... Good looking dude, well built, looks like he could be in a rodeo, could act well, all the, basically everything that Tyler was. So I just, I had just worked with him. I said, this guy's pretty great. Maybe we should call his people. Called his people. They saw that my name was on the project. So it legitimized it really quick. And uh, he came down to Texas. We shot the project. And during that film, we both read that Timo had gotten picked up. So it was sort of this fun way to remember it. So. Oh, that's, that's awesome. That's so cool. Uh, yeah. He's a great guy. Tyler, Tyler is literally, he, you can, you can tell him to do anything and he'll figure out a way to do it, even if it's not really possible. And I learned that really early on, on that rodeo movie, because we had real rodeo, like, um, bull riders and we had real bulls that were, you know, they're like trucks that jump and kick. <laughs> and he would run in and do it and, you know, run across, uh, one of the arenas to do a scene and, I'm not getting in there. I'm going to be behind this thing with a camera. (laughs) (laughs) Is there a scene from season one or two that was particularly fun to film? I can tell you locations that there were very cool places to shoot. Yeah. Um, Yes, please. So all of my work in the pilot season one and season two were all done in and around Atlanta, Georgia. And it was definitely season two, but we had shot everything that was woods in this sort of nature preserve that was there for or companies to have outings or picnics or whatever. It was a beautiful area that was probably a square mile and it had a river that ran through it and everything. So we used it on its off season during the winter. It has a beautiful river in it. And we did a scene where Colton was coming out of the water at night. And it, I mean, I'm surprised I didn't see chunks of ice floating in it. And it, the water must have been just above freezing. And he waded out there, dunked his head down, waited a second and popped up and then walked out. And we couldn't believe it because the kid, I mean, the kid has no body fat to begin with. So (laughs) putting him in there, it's like the hypothermia was just a few seconds away. I was very impressed with how dedicated and how strong these, these actors were from such a young age. We used the river a lot as well as the woods. We also built a house that was, that was sort of burnt down in that woods. And we built it, me and Russell sat down and scouted where that would be. And it was just a two wall set. 
we walked up to it, but it was just like the psycho house was built on the universal lot. It was just, you had to look at it from this perspective. Then it looked like a complete hope. But if you moved 15 feet to your right, you saw that it was not a real house. So it was stuff like that, that I always thought, man, these old, these old gags we did were always so cool because it made it the life easier for production, but also we know that it wasn't real and nobody else did, you know? So, and I, the art teams that we somehow conned them into being part of the show, (laughs) they were always so talented. Like they went off to do amazing things, but we would get them at a time where they were like, yeah, I did. I, I read the script and I thought, Team Wolf, that can't be. And then they would do the show and they're like, yeah, all right, you guys are on the right track. There was an underground, like a steel mill that we went to. It was in the middle of the city and we had to go an under underground and we had built it into like a railway stop. It was just, it was an empty room that was scary to go in. And the team built this amazing, I think it was where Tyler Hecklin had lived at one time and we did a bunch of scenes down there. It was, I was always very impressed with the work that the scenics and the set builders and the designers would do on that show. So fascinating to learn like the behind the scenes of everything like that. What was a typical work day like for you when filming an episode of Teen Wolf? So I, I learned that this was unusual later on. So I shot every single episode uh, from pilot to, to season two. So 24 plus one. I would shoot during the day and the next director and AD team would come on at lunch or come to set and would talk about things that were going to be new or introduced into the next episode so that we had always been getting ready for the new thing. And since I was always shooting them, it was easier for them to come meet me and would talk through it when I had a minute. And then my team would get on that to start doing whatever new thing. So a typical day for me would be get up. We would, we would shoot until lunchtime. And usually I would have a lunchtime meeting with either the current creative team moving forward. I think it started with like eight days and went to seven days an episode. And on one of those days, we do sort of two units at the same time. So at lunchtime, I would meet and either continue talking more about what was happening later in that week or what would be introduced in the next episode with the new director. And then uh, by the end of the week, we were, were fully understood of what we're walking into the next starting day. Monday morning being another adventure. The cool thing was is that there was never like every other episode was a new team. They did the block thing where they one director would do three or two in a row. And then the next person would do two or three in a row. So it would make it a little bit more of a long creative block instead of things changing all the time. I think it made it easier for not only us as the craftsmen, but also the, you know, the script supervising teams in the 80s as well as... The cast too, because everybody talks a little different, explains things a little different, has a little bit different of a way to approach a scene too, whether they're stronger, you know, traditional shooters or it's traditional coverage and traditional wides or they're crazy where they want to do everything handheld or on a steady cam. You know, it's easier to do it in longer bursts than just everything changing all the time. So it's almost like a movie schedule, almost like you almost have like a little indie film schedule where it's like a little 21 day shoot of three episodes so that's that's cool well one of the things that i am sure eventually people got this because in the later seasons i think they changed out but um, the lacrosse which i thought was amazing jeff has a great reason why he has lacrosse in there but the first thing they said is we need a lacrosse field nobody had a lacrosse field in georgia so russell and i literally sat in his office once trying to figure out how do we fake it and i said well why don't there's movie lights out there that look like stadium lights. And I showed him. 
And he said, great, how high can we get them? And I'm like, we'll put them on lifts and we'll just backlight the, it's, so the pitch that they did all of their lacrosse on was just an empty field, not too far from the production office that we just put these stadium lights and we did a thing with, I don't know if you're allowed to say it more, but it's called French reversing, where if we went one way, we would just switch the teams to the other sides of the field and then go the other way. We only looked one direction. Oh, I've never noticed that. that That's crazy. So, so that we never had to move the lights. So we basically stadiumed these, these sort of giant stadium lights high up and made like a row of them. And then we had the kids play in front of them and it would light up, have steam and everything. So you wouldn't see beyond them really well. And then anytime we needed to have coverage on the other side of the field, they, they would just get on the other side of the field. So they were going the right direction the whole time. So a red team was always going left and a blue team was always going right. So we just had to keep track of that. That was That's the only thing. Are they going the right way? Okay, good. Oh my God. <laughs> I would lose my mind. I would love to take creative credit for, but a lot of the creative decisions came from a need. How do we spend less time doing this scene so that we spend more time on the dramatic stuff? Screen time is also a factor too. Like, oh, we're just going to see these guys run across the field in like 10 frames. Okay, make it an amazing 10 frame shot. Great. Now we're going to get to the one that's a three minute scene of two people like pouring their heart out. Okay, spend some more time there. So it was always this balance act of how can we never let the audience know that we had to always move the deck. Yeah. You never guess because like, yeah, those games all look so amazing and like intense and everything. And yeah, I never would guess it was just <laughs> cinematic um, sleight of hand. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> what was it like working with a director to make their vision come to life? In the time that I was there, I only had uh, one director that was guest director that showed up. Toby Wilkins came in. He came from an editorial background, so he had everything very much so designed as an editor would. So a lot of his stuff with me was more, how do I make this more, more like visually interesting to... Do you have a favorite episode of Teen Wolf? I don't. So I have some favorite scenes that were meaningful to do. And they always sort of stuck with me. Early season one stuff with Styles, with Dylan O'Brien and Tyler Posey, communicating like high school kids were because they were actually high school kids. They weren't adults playing high school kids. So they were authentic voices in an environment that they belonged. I mean, they were in their teens. So when these two teenagers would have these scenes where they were being buddies, Styles is asking Tyler to talk to a girl for him. It was so authentic. And I remember thinking, you don't have to like coach them to sound younger because they sound the part. And I remember that being a big deal. The first time I met Dylan, me and Russell, we had just got to Atlanta and we met the cast again and everything. And I remember I had not met Dylan yet. And I met him and I got to hang out with him for a little bit because we were all doing a table read and everything. And I leaned over to Russell and I said, I think that guy's going to be a big star. Dylan Bryan was a big star from from the beginning and same with Tyler Posey I remember when I met him for the first time wow that's the kid that I remember in some of these movies he's great where the hell has he been like now he's now he's our lead so uh, they had fantastic luck finding very talented young actors and I am very much so happy that I was involved with it Wonderful. It's funny you were talking about Styles and Scott scenes being some of your favorites because I actually had a question. 
about a specific scene. Well, first I want to just say how much I love the scene in Lunatic whenever Scott is having a panic attack and Styles is trying to talk him down the locker room and you have a fan behind Styles and there's like the shadows uh, moving across Scott's face. And I thought that was just a really cool effect. How do you set up a shot like that? And how do you walk the line between something that's a really cool effect like that and something that might distract the audience? I remember that the pages came out and that the scene took place in a locker room shower. Well, traditionally in locker room showers, it's not gonna be windows or anything interesting. It's a, it's a tile wall, right? It's designed, go in, shower and leave, and it's private. How do you make this scene edgy because of what's happening in the scene, but also intimate? And I think Tim, he had asked for a few element ideas of how do we make maybe the lighting interesting that might be able to kind of foreshadow what's going on. And I think he came up with the propeller idea of like one of the wind fans that would evac steam out of the room or something. So we built that. And I think the concept was to build a ticking clock, like a metronome in the scene, because something either bad's gonna happen or something isn't, but we don't know which way it's gonna go. And with the propeller, it kind of had a consistent visual that mixed up the scene. It's a beautiful shot. I really love it. It's quite yeah, wonderful. I think it really adds something. It's, it's very interesting what you're talking about, like a metronome there. I didn't think of it like that, but that's really interesting now that you've told me that. Yeah, it's a awesome. little bit solutions. film noir too, working with yeah. the architecture of shadows on the characters' faces. And yeah, it, it looks great. Thank you. Do you have a favorite Teen Wolf character? I was a Styles fan because I always felt like I was <laughs> in high school anyway. Dylan showed up as Dylan and played Styles exactly the way that he was in real life. He's a very genuine guy. I feel like his character is the best situation of all the things. He gets to witness all the stuff happening without having to actually transform himself or have to worry about, you know, killing his friends. He was always sort of the, uh, the helper or the conduit in the whole show, whether it was helping to hunt something and to stop it or to save it. And same thing with chasing his love the whole time. He was either in a perfect line with her or he was completely off the path and he needed help. He was always a fun character and I thought that Dylan did a great job with Styles. And it was a 180 from the movie, which I thought was fantastic. I think everything's a 180 from the movie (laughs) in the best possible way. Yeah, I mean, they took a character that, that is pretty borderline terrible in the movie <laughs> yeah. uh, and made him be, to be such a lovable young boy. Nice. I think Styles is one of the greatest like fictional characters ever. And I think it's like you said, you know, he feels so genuine. I always thought Holland was great. I always thought uh, Lydia's character was really fun. Absolutely. Absolutely, She's yes. She's a great actress. You were the DP for the movie Zombieverse. And I am intrigued. <laughs> I have two related questions. One, should we watch this as part of our Teen Wolf movie club where we watch movies featuring the work of the Teen Wolf cast and crew? And then second question, were any zombievers harmed in the making of that film? Uh, I'll answer the second one first. I guarantee there were many harmed. I'm very happy I did that movie. In all the other work that I've ever done, Teen Wolf is maybe uh, close with it, but no matter where I am in any part of the world, if I say I'm a filmmaker and they say anything, you, uh, tell me some of the stuff you've done, 
if I rattle off a bunch of art pictures that I've done, their eyes, you know, glaze over. They don't really know. And then I say, I did a movie called Zombie Zombievers. I, <laughs> I was in the desert in Morocco on on a on a thing one time, and the people knew exactly what that was. That uh, is awesome. That. So that movie travels more so than cool. anything I've ever done. Well, I'm but convinced. I think we should add that to our lineup. Yes. We don't have to watch it on your show. The fight scene in Lunatic is incredibly impressive. Was it difficult to film uh, scenes like that when you have to use stunt doubles, knowing that's important to not see their faces? It is difficult, but again, if you're organized, and I come from a lot of action film background from B-movies to uh, studio movies as first and second unit on fight scenes, car scenes, stuff like that. So that kind of thing is very easy to me, but the one thing, like you said, you have to watch out for is how do we not give it away in the first shot? How do we make sure that a stunt double looks like the real thing in every given shot? And that comes down, Russell is very good at that. Tim was very good at that. He would listen to the coordinators and the stunt actors and figure out how, when they got hit and spun around and landed, how they face the other way so that we can catch the real thing. And they just, they take time and they take organization, but you lean heavily on your coordinators and your stunt team to make sure that they are doing their part to hide who they are, as well as your script supervisor is doing a lot of notes to make sure that, oh, we saw clear as day, this is not Scott. We saw clear as day, this is a, okay, great, Mark, that will do it again. Like we'll do it, maybe we'll do it from a different camera angle so that there's another option and but it's fun it's a lot of fun to come up with original ways to do every single there's only so many fights you can shoot in so many unique ways you have to always come up with a different perspective yeah i think teen wolf did a really good job of like not having boring fight scenes like that you worked on one of my absolute favorite episodes of season two abomination what was it like working with tyler hecklin and dylan o'brien for that i particularly love the scene whenever styles is swimming down to get Derek. And he brings him back up to the surface after he's dropped him. How is an underwater scene like that filmed? Very carefully. I don't, uh, honestly, in all, in all fairness, Tyler Hecklin can hold his breath for a real long time. I mean, it's dangerous to work underwater, obviously, right? And so you kind of test, where's your, where's your safety, like, level? Where, as an actor, you're the one, you know, you tell us when it's too much. And I don't. I mean, I, I can swim. I can. I was forced on that show to figure out how to shoot underwater. I would. I didn't scuba dive before then, and uh, yeah, Tyler it could do these shots where we could film him for 15 seconds underwater, and he would drift to the bottom. And we're watching it on a monitor in you know safe above water, eating a sandwich. Oh, on the <laughs> <laughs> we're like, wow, he's still. How long has he been under there? You know, like we're still rolling. He did a great job in full clothes too. That's gotta be, gotta be worse. You know, jeans kind of are tough to swim in. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, no, the water stuff, we did it. We did a little bit in season one in a pool in the very beginning where uh, Tyler jumps into the pool and I did a shot of him in the pool, but that was way tame. And we did it later. I think we did it in California afterward. But uh, the scene in the pool for uh, Hecklin was, that was all, that was all him being a uh, wow. huge it's crazy. I don't know. I couldn't have done it. Yeah, he he played. He sunk to the bottom like a stone, too. <laughs> yeah. All that muscle. Weighing him very, down. <laughs> All that muscle, right? Yeah. So we know he's not a witch. <laughs> 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 Definitely. 
Yeah. And that was one of the, that was one of the other things. Uh, back to you said uh, you were asking if there's anything cool that stuck in my head. That place that we shot was like a uh, that pool was a um, like a rec center in outside of just outside of the main downtown Atlanta, Georgia. And the time and that we were there, time of the year, people weren't really going to swim in because it was freezing out. I mean, I think there was a snowstorm a week earlier than that, and so we just had the we had this giant aquatic center to ourselves for a while. So we would, we, I think we filmed there a couple times that season, uh, both during the day and night. And, um, you know, we were really given a lot of free reign, both from the studio to go try unique things, as well as the city to go, oh yeah, no, it's available, go ahead. We were very fortunate, looking back on it now, where to do stuff like that today, especially in somewhere as crowded as Atlanta, now for television, it, it would be very hard to do. It's amazing. Yeah. So, so you had to learn to scuba dive for those underwater scenes? Learn is a very stretch, very stretched out. <laughs> uh, we have our person that we, in the first uh, season, we had to do an underwater shot and our guy didn't show up that was going to do the underwater stuff. So they all kind of looked at me and like, what? I don't, I don't scuba dive. So my key grip on the show was going to be the the water safety person because he does scuba. Dive. Come over here and show you something. I don't know how legal this is, but he basically <laughs> showed me how to do it. And, you know, so I'm like, fine, I'll do it. Put the thing in. I, you know, I get the wetsuit and I start going into the water and the water's I'm like, all right, here we go. I go underwater, water, and stop. And then I get myself out. I'm like, I can't do this, you know? And then just psych yourself out where I kept telling myself, you can breathe underwater, you can breathe underwater, you can breathe underwater, you can breathe underwater. Finally, I get to the place under, we do the shot and I come out and the key grip said, oh, I did a great job. And then he looks at my tank and evidently I had sucked through so much oxygen like to the equivalent of, I was under there for like five or eight minutes, but he said, you've sucked through like two hours worth of oxygen. <laughs> and I was just under there just. <laughs> oh no. Like, it was just terrifying. But um, after that, I went and got certified. That's cool. Kind of oh my God. Only one shot. It's just, we didn't have any way to do it. And so somebody had to figure out how to do it. Well, that's the, that's the Teen Wolf way. The yeah. person didn't show up. We got to figure it out. Well, Jonathan, are there any upcoming projects you can tell us about? I've done a slew of movies to where we're coming out of this COVID lockdown a little bit at a time. And during the pandemic, I was able to do a World War II film uh, that was entitled, it was originally titled Ave Maria, but I think it's going to be called something else. Um, Go on. That's my, that's my favorite war. He loves. (laughs) I'm a huge World World War II II nerd. World War II nerd. So. It was a lot of fun. I, you know, I, I remember rolling my eyes a couple of years ago thinking, God, we're doing another World War II movies on the, you know, in the theaters and all that kind of a thing. Cause you, so many were done so bad. So you're like, ah, this is painful. But this, this script came across to a director that I work with often. And um, it's essentially three kings in World War II. Nice. I don't know real, but like a, like a true story that actually took place where, Very cool. you know, Americans wanted to go find all that gold that wasn't oh, accounted. Yep. Yeah. Well, yeah, no, I, I, that picture's coming out, and I just finished one actually in Atlanta. That is an, another action action shoot 'em up, get nice. revenge. That'd be out next year. But um, yeah, no, it's it's been busy for how much we've had to pause, so I can't complain. Well, fantastic! That's great. I'm awesome. glad you're working. Yeah, this has been a pleasure, Jonathan. This has been uh, it was, it was, wonderful. It, usually, my stuff isn't very interesting to talk about to to normal people. Oh, this is fascinating. This is yeah. So cool. I, I thought it was super interesting. Yeah. I've learned like so much and it's just been really cool to speak with you. Yeah. Thank you for, so much for sitting down with us. 
Of course, I'm glad it worked out. All right, Wolfies, that wraps up the beta section for Lunatic. And now we're about to dive into spoilers. Not just for this episode, but for the whole Teen Wolf series. If you want to stay spoiler-free for all of the excellent stories to come, jump out now and we'll catch you next week. But if this isn't your first time in Beacon Hills and you want to hear more, don't move a muscle. Here comes the alpha. You sure about that? Because you got this kind of serial killer look going on in your eyes and I'm hoping it's the full moon taking effect because it's really starting to freak me out. So... Derek is all like, I've heard a thing. I don't know if it's true or not. I believe unverified. If you kill the alpha that bit you, you're cured. I think all of this is a lie. I think there's no way that werewolves could have existed for any amount of time. Someone would have thought this and been like, I'm going to put this to the test. And then it fails. I think so. I think it's something that goes around, but it's like, this isn't a thing. This doesn't exist. And I think Derek knows this. And I think he's saying it because he are, I I believe that Derek, when Laura died, he was like, I'm going to kill the alpha. I'm going to be an alpha. I don't want anyone else to die. And I can't do that as a not alpha. He's saying what Scott wants to hear in order to keep Scott on his side so that it's two against one. See, I disagree. I don't think he's, I think he genuinely doesn't know. Mm-hmm. Because I think, like Kate said, Scott is the one who brought this up. Derek didn't go to him and be like, guess what? I realized if you kill the alpha, mm-hmm. you can go ahead and turn back to how you were. So all we have to do is go track down the alpha and kill him and you'll be back to normal. Mm-hmm. So I think that, like, we know Derek isn't good at lying. Like He doesn't even bother. Liar. And he doesn't usually even bother. So yeah. I think he just genuinely doesn't know. And he's like... You know, I've heard this. I don't know if it's true. It could be, but this is just what I know. It's like a urban legend. Mm-hmm. But um, in it, in the werewolf community, in the werewolf community, like who knows? Because yeah. it doesn't come up enough in the werewolf world. He comes from a born wolf family, so we don't know how many generations back that goes. Mm-hmm. We don't even really know the rules of like if two bitten wolves have a baby, would then it be born a werewolf? We don't know enough about that. Yeah. Although I would like to know. I want to see I would like to know. the lycanthrope anthrope punnet squares. <laughs> Me too. That's what I want. Me nice. too. But yeah, so my guess is it's not something that was that has been around for generations. It's not something that comes up regularly. Mm-hmm. So I think that it's just something that they've heard of but no one knows okay. for certain. Maybe his mother did and she didn't tell him, but like, cause I don't know what, why it would even come up. Mm-hmm. They didn't know any, as far as we know, bitten wolves. Mm-hmm. Right. So I, I feel like he's being genuine when he says, I've heard of this and it could help you. And I also don't know if he's committed to killing the alpha at this point. Ultimately he does, but I feel like he does it once he realizes it's Peter. I think that's the moment when he decides if Peter dies, he will be the one to kill him, not Scott. Okay. Yeah, I, I'm in total agreement, which is probably not a surprise because I tend to have a very charitable view of Derek. Um, <laughs> but going back to a discussion that we had in an earlier episode, you know, we talked about like, why does Derek know so little about bitten wolves? Mm-hmm. Remember we had that discussion mm-hmm. and the best that I could come up with besides drama was that, you know, because 
he came from a Bornwolf family. And because it seemed like the Beacon Hills pack kept themselves to themselves, you know, Mm -hmm. like when Kate is trying to figure out who the Beacon Hills pack is in On Fire, right? She doesn't just know who they are. It's not like we have a registry of werewolves Mm -hmm. because they're obvious about it and they go around biting people, you know, like it seems logical based on what we know that the Hales didn't really go around biting people. Mm -hmm. Derek probably never even met a bitten wolf until he met Scott. Mm -hmm. Or if he did, it was probably something where like somebody in his family married a human and they decided to turn and it was a very like structured endeavor. Yeah. So like within that context, it's not outrageous to think that he might not know the answer to this question. Mm -hmm. The other reason is that you kind of touched on this a little bit, Calissa, but if he were just trying to manipulate Scott, why would he say, I don't know if it's true? Because if his intention is never to let Scott try, why even say that? Wouldn't it make more sense to be like, like you said, Calissa, just be like, Scott, guess what? If you help me catch and kill the alpha, you can be human again. Yay. That's what you want. I can give it to you. And instead he's like, I have no idea if this is true. If his plan is to get Scott to help him so that he can then swoop in and kill the alpha, he has no reason to tell Scott, I don't know if it's true because he is never going to let Scott try. So it's not like Scott's going to turn and be turn around and be like, Hey, it didn't work. And now I'm a alpha he has no intention in what you're saying if that's true he would have had no intention to let scott try anyway so if he's manipulating scott it would have made more sense just to be like this is definitely true i mean he could have even been like i can see that if the werewolf that turned you dies you'll revert back to human he could have said i'll be the one to kill him so you don't have to do that and you'll just turn back all you have to do is help me find him Yay. Mm-hmm. Even easier, Scott. Okay. I can see that. I do still think he was going to kill the alpha the whole time. Um, just because I don't know what he would be coming back to Beacon Hills for. Yeah, to find out. But then what? I mean, it's not like there's like werewolf court. Well, yeah, but he, think... he doesn't even think the alpha killed Laura in the beginning. He thinks right. the hunters did. Yeah. Remember? Until Kate in I think he came, five. he came back to figure out what was going on. And then he thought the hunters did it. Then Kate oh, says, yeah. no, it was the alpha. And then he switches his focus, not just to figure out what, what's going on, but then he's like, the alpha is the one who killed her. If he did plan on killing the alpha, it was because the alpha killed Laura and this is what needs to be done. I don't think it was a revenge thing. I mean, to some degree, but it's not that until Peter comes along, I think he would have let Scott do it if he did think that it could turn Scott back. But then once he realizes it's Peter, he's like, I feel like it's almost like when they have in movies, like like zombie movies and a loved one gets bitten. And I know exactly what you're going to say. Yeah, it has to be the person who loves them to do it. I feel like as the last remaining Hail member, he needs to do it. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. It's, like, even like, it's his responsibility and also it's almost weirdly more respectful. Yes. Like if the last remaining Hale besides myself needs to die, which he does, mm-hmm. I'm going to be the one to do it. It's yeah. not going to be somebody else finishes us off. Yeah. We'll do it on my terms. Yeah. Exactly. If only Derek had another sister or family <laughs> member. Whose that name, would be crazy, Will. It would be crazy. A cousin Oliver, baby. <laughs> all right, well, y'all, you've you've convinced me. You good? That's what we're well, on the okay. So to do, Derek came back. Other things. 
So Derek came back to find and out. And killed... two seconds later, her back to a different his same opinion. Well, it's until possible. he found her, he didn't necessarily know that she was dead. He might have suspected if he like felt a disturbance in the werewolf force or whatever, but like it, he didn't know for sure that she was dead until he got there. So then he finds her body, and then he's like obviously. But I guess crushed. what he doesn't. So he's not really doing anything. Like he finds her. He, he finds she's dead. He believes hunters did it, but he's not actively doing anything about it and then he learns the hunters didn't do it well because i if if you like pay attention to the moments when he pops up right it's because he realizes the day after scott is bitten he realizes that scott has been bitten yes and he decides he's going to take it upon himself to keep Scott from either getting murdered or essentially suffering the same fate that he has suffered. All his decisions in the show pretty much line up with that primary objective. So okay. he he does tell Scott, like, we need to find the alpha, but it's mostly about, like, because you're going to lose control or he's going to try to kill you or right. he's going to try to make you kill other people or because he's killing other people. Like, these are all the reasons. It's not... He's, he thinks that the hunters did it because yeah. of the cutting her in half, which as yeah. we know from this very episode is apparently just a thing they do. Yeah, I guess there's no coming back from that. Right. He comes to the, I think, understandable conclusion that her body was cut in half. That's a hunter calling card. So she was probably killed by hunters. I don't think necessarily that he thinks like, oh, well, but I think he feels like what's going on with Scott is the most immediate problem. So it's not even the the most immediate problem to him, but Mm -hmm. it is Mm -hmm. like in general, which is part of, I think, why it takes such a charitable view toward him because so much of what he does in the first season is purely to try to keep Scott from getting killed. Like they're not, you know, don't get me wrong. They're not good methods. He's bad at it, (laughs) but he doesn't really have a lot of selfish reasons to be doing this. Okay. Yeah, I feel like, yeah, he just throws himself immediately into trying to help Scott because that's like what's necessary. But, you know, without that, he just became an Omega. He is rudderless. He doesn't have some, like he's a beta who's looked always to his alpha to guide him. Mm -hmm. And now he doesn't have that. We don't know what he would have done if, he didn't have a personal feeling that he needs to help guide Scott. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Maybe he would have like looked for an alpha and tried to join that pack. Or maybe he would have just tried to kill the hunters knowing he'd likely die in the process. We don't know because that's immediately not that's not what yeah. happens. He yeah. doesn't have time to process his own grief or what needs to be done. He like, he just pushes it all down so that he can focus on what needs to be done and separate his own emotions because that's who Derek is. He's been a survivor all of his life and he just has to keep on going because he's needed. That's what he does. Yeah. He, he keeps going because he's needed. That's pretty much Derek in a nutshell, especially in season one, like losing all of our fic and all of our fic. Yeah. He, I mean, losing his alpha in the pilot is sort of like being orphaned all over again. Right. You know, because Laura wasn't a parent, but she was an alpha. So she was both a family member and an authority figure, you know? Yeah. And I think that that is a big part of why Peter is able to manipulate him later in the season when he realizes that Peter is the alpha, because 
Peter understands that that's what Derek desperately wants. Yeah. Is his family back and someone to guide him because he doesn't know what he's doing. Yeah. And he, okay. he wants to be doing things that are constructive and that help, but he feels like he doesn't know how to do it. So he, he does his best, but the results are not awesome. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, and so I, I feel like he is kind of like when he loses Laura, it's like, this is another ground shake. This is another ground shaking tragedy, but he latches onto something that he feels like I can be useful here. Mm-hmm. I can okay. at least stop Scott from getting himself and or others killed. And I don't really care if Scott hates me in the process, as long as I get the job done. That all makes sense. I like that. If you have any other questions about Derek's perspective or, you know, motivation, we're definitely the people to ask because we've been thinking about this for the past 10 years. Nice. I do have a question though. Okay. Who cut Laura in half and scattered the pieces. The hunters. The hunters. Yep. No, who? I mean, we don't know. There's a bunch of henchmen stuff. Yeah, but it's probably a Victoria's Victoria probably ordered them to do it. I guess, but it doesn't seem like a Chris move. It's a Victoria move. It doesn't seem like there was a hunter presence in Beacon Hills, you know, because they the Argents arrive right after Scott. Well, but I feel like they were already there. They just weren't. Like Allison hadn't enrolled in school, but usually when you move somewhere, you don't start school the same day. No, true. So I think they probably, arrive. yeah. So they probably had already moved in and had already been there for a bit trying to get established. And maybe like, you know, Chris came beforehand to check things out or he sent other people and they're the ones who did it. Yeah, it, it's it's not clear who actually like did the deed, but... Yeah, there, there are a lot of henchmen. And we also know from the Hale storyline that Kate used to live there. And she also wasn't working alone at that time either. Yeah. So right I think now. there's sort of, there's probably like a network of hunters okay. in mm-hmm. Northern California. And they have sort of tabs on different things that are happening supernatural wise. I do think... In terms of hunting style, it does sound like Victoria, as again, we learn in this episode. <laughs> yeah. And that does seem to be, I guess, just part of hunter ways, because we see them cut that Omega half into a one. So <laughs> that's just like the thing. Because I guess I'm thinking that's because they're like, you can't heal from that. Right. That, you know, you can maybe shoot them in the head and most likely they'll die, but maybe not. But and also then- sometimes humans can have like, you know, railway pipes shoved through their eyeballs and still survive so yeah so weird stuff happens yeah so okay we do get a lot of weird stuff on this show but the one thing we don't get really is love triangles calissa what do you think about that i'm so happy that this is the only time we get a love triangle oh or it seems like you know lydia and scott and then styles being jealous of them and anything going on there because i hate that and i find it so unnecessary on shows especially teen shows. Yeah. And especially I think watching it as an adult, like having gotten into it when I was already an adult, as opposed to watching it when I was a teenager, Mm. my, my tolerance for that sort of thing was already very low. Yeah. Um, So, you know, no, no judgment if that is something you really like in stories. Right. Of course. It's just not something I like. It feels like maybe love triangles can be like a story crutch Mm -hmm. sometimes. Like maybe like, we don't know what to do. Oh, love triangle, you know, and but no, we we didn't really do that. I think the only other time we even got close to it was when Charmin's character like starts. Isaac. 
Isaac and Allison, and then like Scott throws him out of the room mm-hmm. and all that. And I think that's that's really as close as we get to it again because I don't think right. we do anything after that. And I think even then I was like, must we? <laughs> yeah, I, I'm not really a fan of that. I'm just like, eh, let's just move on. It's over. Or frankly, uh, maybe turn that love triangle into a happy circle. <laughs> right. What does that mean? It means they should have been in a three-person polyamorous relationship or oh, got a thruple. It. A thruple? I'm familiar with that word. I'm um, sure you are. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I yeah. think they should have been the three spirals in the Triskelion. Oh. I love that we have, in season six, Styles going into the FBI because it, it's like the idea of like, yeah, they have an inside man, but an inside guy who can protect them rather than use their power to help hunt them down. Yeah. Right. He, he'll he be a federally designated werewolf advocate. I feel like if werewolves became like worldwide known, he would be someone who was like advocating for like werewolf rights. He'd be mm-hmm. like a werewolf human, werewolf, werewolf rights lawyer, not human rights. And later, I think, is it 3A or maybe it's in 4 where the bounty hunter character... Brayden. Brayden. There it is, Brayden. That Brayden either is or has, pretends to be a U.S. Marshal. I think she to, actually is. is. Act, uh, that's what I, I thought, I think she's too, actually yeah. a U.S. Marshal. Yeah, and she's able to use that to get in and out of tricky situations and places because she's got she's got that badge. She's got so, the badge. Yeah. Remember when y'all took pictures with her and I had we had to take the badge off because we hadn't revealed that yes. information yet? Oh, Peter, that's right. Peter wishes it was Styles. He definitely does. <laughs> he made a terrible mistake that night in the woods. He he is embodying every arrested development gif where a various where <laughs> Uh, he embodies every Arrested Development gif where a character says, I've made a huge mistake. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> yep. But as, as you said in a previous episode, Calissa, he is very wrapped up in the sunk cost fallacy with Scott. Mm-hmm. It's like, okay, but I've put forth this much time, effort, and showmanship into this beta that I've created. So I kind of have to see it through, right? I don't know why he didn't just fight styles like why he offers him a choice instead of just well no why he whenever instead of like being like oh scott needs to kill his old pack Mm -hmm. make his pack his new pack make it the old pack the new one unless he thought they were like gonna serp him and kill him Hmm. yeah i can't imagine that he thinks that would happen i mean maybe jackson and or lydia because they both their fatal flaw has to do with them sort of tying their sense of worth self-worth to their ambition and then making Kind of sometimes extreme decisions based on that. But well, yeah, let's I, be real. I, They're not part of Scott's pack, despite what being told. Despite right. what Style said at the end of night school. What Scott said at the end of night school. Oh, yes. I'm sorry. I thought it was, yeah. yes. Yeah, but definitely uh, with Styles, it's like, why don't you just bite Styles? That would be much faster. Unless yeah. he thinks that Styles is too smart for him to manipulate. That could be a thing because I don't believe Peter really tries to manipulate him too much. He threatens him a lot, but it's always with, I'm just going to punch you in the face really <laughs> hard unless you do this thing right now. It's which, very straightforward right, yeah, in a way not, that he is not with other characters. Yeah, he yeah. doesn't. Because I mean, like, honestly, a lot of the stuff with Scott is very Machiavellian and all of this. Right. And it's like, or not. You don't have to do that. I mean, granted, Peter's a drama queen, you know, and like whatever like creates the best story and the best version of events and all that. Okay, he's going to do that. But it's just like 
with styles, he's just like, help me or I hurt you. This, this is, these are the options. I'm not yeah. going to try and like joker you into this or something. Right. I'm not going to make this as, as complicated as I make other things sometimes. <laughs> yeah. So, but you're right. I think he, that might have been a thing where it's like, if I bite styles, I don't know if I'm going to be able to have control over him as much as I would like. He doesn't seem to be that type of, he's not pliable. He's not malleable the way right. Scott is. So, or Derek for that matter. You know, I, I or think Derek, he, yeah. he, he yeah. understands how to get Derek on his side. Mm-hmm. He is trying some things with how to get Scott on his side. But I, I feel like the reason he, I, I actually think he offers the bite out of genuine respect because it's like, I it's, not, it's not like I'm going to bite you and then you're going to be part of my pack. That's not the impression that I got in that scene. So I, I think maybe his earlier rationale was like, style i don't know what he would do if i tried to get him to be in my pack yeah if i'm gonna bite him it's just like i'm gonna bite you out of respect and then you can go do whatever you want with that you're not gonna be in my pack i'm not gonna be your alpha yeah we both know that yeah i I think he agrees with derek you know the bite is a gift now he sees it more as like power complete power but he doesn't see it as a curse yeah he's just like hey this thing is awesome you want you want some Mm -hmm. awesome Cause I'll give you the awesome. And then Styles was like, nah, bro. <laughs> and that concludes this week's episode of return to beacon Hills. We hope you had as much fun listening as we did talking about all things teen. will follow us on Twitter and Instagram at RTBH podcast, as well as on TikTok and Tumblr at return to beacon Hills. If you'd like to ask us questions or offer suggestions for future topics to discuss, you can email us at return to beacon Hills at gmail.com. And don't forget to find us at patreon.com slash RTBH podcast for more awesome exclusives. Join us here next week for our look at season one, episode nine, Wolfsbane, and our talk with actor Adam Fristo, who played Adrian Harris. Rate and review us on iTunes. Five star reviews, get a shout out. Have a great week, and we'll see you again soon on Return to Beacon Hills. Dude, it's Beacon Hills.